Thank you, Pastor Mario, for inviting me. It's such a privilege and an honor to be among you uh, this morning. So before uh, we jump into my testimony, or rather, it's uh, not just my story, it's actually God's story. God is weaving in our lives and the lives of those around us in the whole world, in nations far and nations close by, God is working. And I pray that you would see God's hand on my life and that would lead you to reflect on your life because God is always at work. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing me here for using a wretched sinner like me to speak before your assembly. What an honor and a privilege that is. Lord, I pray that I would be able to convey what you have done in my life and what you continue to do in all the people. Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts of those who are here and open their minds to see what you are doing. Lord, thank you for this opportunity this morning. I pray that you would be with us and you would bless us in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I would like to just a little bit unpack as we go through the outline. It's called God's Limitless Love. It's just to help you kind of like go through this whole story and benefit from it. Uh, the testimony, I tried to make it uh, more than just a testimony, that it would also have some elements that you would be able to learn what Islam teaches in certain aspects versus Christianity. And so I pray that it would be a huge blessing to you. Uh, next slide, it will show you uh, the, the first slide, yes. Uh, we'll go through God's sovereignty, uh, and the spiritual life of a Muslim versus a Christian, the motivation of fear of punishment, not love, and the salvation of works in Islam, not grace. Uh, the, the people as Muslims were governed by the flesh, not the transformative uh, power of the spirit. God's humility and love, the transformation that is being done through Christ, the foolishness of the gospel, as my family and friends have, as I told my family and friends that I'm a Christian, they, their response was uh, that this is foolish. And the beautiful feet, uh, what was, how did I react to, now that I became a Christian, how did I react uh, when I was in Saudi Arabia? And the inseparable love of Christ. That's how we're gonna close. So the first thing I would like to uh, Go ahead and start with Isaiah 46, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purposes. The Lord also says in Isaiah 65, verse 1, and this verse is a very special verse for me. The Lord says this, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. 
here am I. This is what God has done in my life. I did not ask for God. I did not seek after God. I didn't want anything to do with God. Nonetheless, God showed up in my life and said, here am I. Here am I. My journey to the Lord certainly demonstrates his sovereignty and his incomprehensible love. I was born in Saudi Arabia of an Egyptian father and a Saudi mother. I was raised a Muslim in a country governed by Sharia law. It was comprehensively preached from the pulpits. It was enforced by law, taught in schools, and reinforced at home. I literally lived and breathed Islam. And Islam was my ultimate identity and nationality. I was a devout Muslim who practiced it fervently until the age of 17. Spiritually, I felt the burden that Muslims have. And that's the burden of Islam, the oppression of Islam, which was plagued with a threat of judgment and the misery in the grave and the hell that to follow. Why? Because if you did not obey the rules, that's what will happen. Having disobeyed many times over, Islam entrenched terror deep into my spiritual being and life as the fear overshadowed me at every turn. Fear became my sole motivation to obey. Allah and Muhammad, through the Quran and the Hadith, repeatedly explained how much hell we would be experiencing if we did not do such, if we uh, did not do it adequately, if we did not do it perfectly. And this is in a stark contrast to what Jesus, what Jesus have done. In 1 John 4.18, we read, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The motivation of fear is of the enemy. The motivation of love is of God. The burden of fear and spiritual terror was perpetrated also by Muslim imams who were akin to those who were in, Je in Jesus' days were the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would not want to lift a finger to help those that they are just simply putting more burdens on them. In Matthew 23 verse 4, Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The pressure of living up to the standards of Allah was so cumbersome that it would bring tears of agony to the eyes of men, women, and children during the prayer in Ramadan in Mecca. Their way of showing worship and reverence, not through joy and expressing of gratitude, but of tears of agony. 
Indeed, Islam is about storing up good deeds to ransom your soul for eternal life. As if you're paying your way into eternal bliss, which is in heaven, according to Islam, is full of alcohol, sex, unworldly comforts. Indeed, Muslims are merely worldly, carnal people who abstain from these things and simply postpone it to the afterlife. It is so interesting that the Islamic heaven is literally the aspiration of people who are lost in their flesh, which is the opposite of those who have the spirit of the living God. As we read in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not result of works, so that no one may boast. And Galatians 5, 7, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. These are two verses that are complete contradiction what Islam teaches. Because in Islam, there is no such thing as spiritual transformation. It is about you abstaining because you have the power to overcome sin. What a foolishness that is. Throughout my childhood, I used to struggle with nightmares. These nightmares were very regular in my uh, nights. And my mom used to uh, bring uh, some of the Quran and she would uh, play uh, like a tape of Quran. And uh, as you all might think, it didn't help. It didn't. It only actually expounded it. And as I grew older, I moved to Canada when I was 14 years old. Things started to slow down. These nightmares started to be more far apart. And I also started to drift further from Islam. I was attracted by the things of this world. Slowly but surely, the chains of Islam were loosening up, but only to replace them with brand new, better looking chains of this world. I did not live up to the standards of Islam anymore, but I started to live to a new set of standards. Start not worshiping Allah anymore, but started to have other type of idols. Idols of sex and money. The standards of the world that I should live up to. I just exchanged religion with the world. However, I was still tormented by the overshadowing fear of Islam. It was at the back of my head. As I was living as worldly as I can, trying to enjoy everything 
I can do. Right? The rule is, if you don't hurt anybody, it's okay, right? That's what the world tells you. And that's what I did. But I didn't know that I was hurting myself. I was caught up in this lie that the world can give me what I really yearn and desire. That the world can give me a purpose. The The world could make me overcome that fear that I lived that overshadowed me. Because I was afraid around the corner if I would die, I would go to the grave where there's going to be more punishment, where there's going to be more hell, where there's going to be misery. And from time to time, I would catch myself crying out of fear. Throughout my university education during that time, I was able to question and kind of think critically about what I really believed. But it never really gave me any fruits. It didn't give me any leads to truth. It was only thoughts. I did not really take it so seriously. And so I stayed in the world. And during that time, I started working in a club, and then I worked my way up until I became a club manager, a nightclub manager here in Montreal. It's crazy. I'm preaching right now. (laughs) So until I was a club manager, until my graduation in 2012. Before my graduation, I had one of those nightmares. But this time, this nightmare was different than any other nightmare. It was more real. I was running. And these demons were scary and they were about to catch me. Until they cornered me, I was reciting verses of the Quran, thinking that these verses will make them relent or make them cease, but they were, their approach continued to hasten. I gave up, but suddenly a big cross comes into my hand. And that's when they cease. They stopped. And that's when I woke up. I woke up in a pool of sweat. I was so afraid. It was early in the morning and I went to my younger brother's room and I slept next to him. I was so afraid. But what really was interesting about that nightmare is that I realized there is such an authority and power to the cross. It made, as a Muslim, it made no sense to me. How could the Quran unable to do anything to these demons, but the cross is able to do something? In 2012, at the age of 24, I moved back to Saudi Arabia to work uh, for a corporate, actually tried to get my life back in order, so I started to get a corporate job. Work allowed me to visit seven different countries in the Middle East, from Morocco to Bahrain, and all over Saudi Arabia. However, there was a different type of struggle when I went back to Saudi Arabia. You see, when I was growing up, when I came to Canada, I started growing up, loosening up the chains of Islam, putting on the chains of this world, 
Now I became totally liberal. I have these liberal Western ideals going back to Saudi Arabia and the clash begins. Clash of my history, of who I was as a fervent Muslim, that's when I left. I memorized more than two-thirds of the Quran by heart. I had imams coming over to my house twice a week for me to memorize the Quran for seven years, from the age of seven to 13. And when I was growing up in Saudi Arabia, I was also had five courses, five religious courses at school that I had to learn throughout my education. So this is my background. And then club manager, graduated, got a job back in Saudi Arabia. Now I'm going back and this clash started happening in my head. Do I really believe this? Should I recant my worldliness and go back to religion? Should I go back to the old chains? So during that time, I really relived my past. I was exposed once again to a more brutal reality, the terror that was entrenched spiritually in my life. I was forced to face it. And I was at a crossroads moment. I had to make a decision. So I decided to leave religion and I became officially an agnostic or a skeptic. But I had to hide out because out of fear of social backlash, judicial prosecution, and family persecution. As an apostate of Islam in a country that is governed by Sharia law, if you leave Islam, the punishment is death. It's treason from the highest order. So, as you understand, I kept it quiet. I kept it on the DL. <laughs> Young people, like, yeah. I see you. So I kept it on the down low. I didn't tell anyone I did not uh, fast. Ramadan, I did not pray. So I had to, when they tell me, oh, we're going to pray, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm going to go do something there, print out some papers. And then, and I would not do the fasting, so everyone would be fasting, and I would eat before I go to work, because I didn't want my colleagues to know that I'm not fasting. And my mom would tell me, did you pray? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did, I did, of course. During that time, one night, I had another dream. And that dream, I saw a Mediterranean-looking man with a beard and hair, long hair to up to here. And there was a radiant light all around him. There was light so bright behind him, I couldn't make up exactly his facial features. He approached me and he put his left hand over my right shoulder. And he just pressed gently. Didn't say a word. I was shocked because I knew who am I in front of. I woke up as a good, typical agnostic, thought this is probably my subconscious praying all these images in my head. 
but I knew it was Jesus. I'm like, but why? Why, why would I even think of Jesus? Did I maybe watch a movie recently, like The Passion of the Christ or something? I'm trying to rationalize my dream in a way that is logical. So, of course, I did not tell anyone because it's not a big deal, right? I just saw Jesus, you know, no big deal. I go to work, and here I am, three weeks later, have a colleague of mine. She leaves her cubicle. She just came back from vacation from Cyprus, and she's a Muslim Saudi girl. She comes, she runs over to my cubicle. So she runs over, and she's like, I have a gift for you. I'm like, great, what did you get me? And she puts something in my hand, and she goes, runs back to her cubicle. I open up my hand, and it's a rosary with a cross on it. I run back to her, I'm like, what was that about? Why would you give me a cross? She's like, I, I don't know, I just thought you might like it. I'm like, I might like it. I go back, obviously, like, again, like a good agnostic skeptic, I didn't think much of it. I didn't really scrutinize or contemplate or reflect on this so much. But obviously, as you may know, Unable to bear this double life in Saudi Arabia, I decided to come back to Montreal. I moved back, end of 2013. I meet my friend, Joseph. Joe was a Greek Orthodox background, and during the two year, or year and a half, I was in Saudi Arabia working for Nestle. Joe becomes a born again believer. I come back, I tell all my friends who are from Montreal, about this, they're like, oh, we're happy for you. Whatever, you know. <laughs> I'm like, you know, in Saudi Arabia, people, people will kill you. And in Canada, people are like, hey, whatever, if that makes you happy. <laughs> you know, I'm having this news. Guys, I'm not a Muslim anymore. I'm agnostic. Yeah, sure. Who pays attention? Joe. Joe goes up to me. He's like, dude, let's talk. Let's go have a cigarette. Unsanctified life, okay? It's, you know, it's uh, I still, he's still early on in the, in the walk. He's like, uh, so what happened? I tell him about the dream. He looks at me and he tells me, you need to come to church with me. That's when I respond, no, thank you. Joe, I'm not going to exchange the freedom that I have with one oppressive system to another oppressive system. I just left Islam. You want to chain me up with another religion? He's like, brother, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not sure I understand that, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. He's like, hey, it's an open invitation. And then the curiosity gets the best of me. Two weeks later, I called up Joe. I'm like, Joe, uh, can I take, up, take you up on your offer? Do not get excited. He's like, praise God. I'm like, whoa, relax. I'm like, I'm just going to go to church. I want to see what's happening. So I go to church, and, and I walk through the doors, and it's the first time for me in a church. First time ever. And I have this weird feeling, this awesome, but I have a feeling. I'm a former Muslim, so I have like, is this wrong? Um, I walk in, and I see people praising God, singing. Coming from my background, 
Singing is forbidden in Islam. Music is of the devil. So in my head, I'm like, where is the reverence? <laughs> What's wrong with these people? And then, I, and then I, you know, I start to catch my own thoughts and, and, and start to tell myself, no, they have to be objective. I have to see what are they really saying. So I start paying attention to the words. And it hit me. They love their God. They're not afraid of their God. For me, that's just beyond me. As I walked out, Pastor John looks at me and he's like, oh, it's you. I look at Joe. And like you told him. John uh, gives me a Bible and he tells me, this is the full Bible. I suggest you start reading from Matthew. If you have any questions, let me know. There was love. The church was a family. I walked away from there, started reading Matthew. And there's something so different about this man, Jesus. There was something so compelling that I wanted to know more about Jesus. Not long after, I realized that all the years of my life, I was in actually a bondage. And at that time, I did not realize, obviously, I traded Islam for the world, but it's a sanctification process. So I realized, I'm going to first start with Jesus. I'm going to say, okay, whatever this guy says in his book, I'm going to follow. And I'm going to take it one step at a time. What I loved about the teachings of Jesus that it opened my mind up to fresh realities. My own imperfections, the purpose of life, specifically the Sermon on the Mount and the Passion Week. They were game changers. After I finished reading Matthew, I got stuck on this notion before I read even Philippians. I understood it. It was crystal clear. I just read Matthew. And it was from the verses in Philippians. Talks about Jesus in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I did not know what will happen to me when I die. I had many questions and more doubts. And I found a new satisfaction in the Bible. I did not find all my answers right away, but I trusted the God who led me to the Bible, he will give me the answers. So my favorite verse that gave me the patience to endure as I had all these questions and all these doubts and all, the, all these thoughts, is it real? Did God really come down? Does he know what I feel? Does he know how weak I am, how I cannot overcome my own sin? Can he sympathize? Can he empathize with me? The verse that gave me the patience it was Mark 9, 24. 
that says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I was like, all right, I'll be patient, Lord. I have a long list of things that I disagreed with the Bible. Long list. We're not going to go into it now. But I had a long list. Because now I came back to Montreal and guess what? I went back to the old habits. I got a job as a club manager again. So I would go to church and I was a club manager. So I was working the night before until 6 a.m. I would come back, hang over after having a cup of coffee. I would go to church. Come outside, leave the doors of the church. People would greet me. Hey, brother, how are you? I'm like, I'm good. They're like, uh, so, so I, never, I never knew, where, did you, where do you work? I say, I'm a club manager. They're like, oh, like a golf club. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, no, nightclub. And the brother looks at me like, nightclub? I'm like, yeah, like a discotheque. He's an older gentleman. Discotheque. He's like, oh, all right, well, have a blessed week. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not sure how blessed, but I will try. So, so I go to John, naturally. I'm like, John, I don't think I belong in, in the church and all these things. And then John looks at me, and he tells me, do you plan to do this for the rest of your life? I tell him, no, of course not. I have other dreams. I want to be an officer in the Canadian military. That's my dream job. He tells me, well, that's good. When meanwhile, are you telling everyone about Jesus? I'm like, what do you mean? Like your staff, your clients? I'm like, you mean my waitresses and bartenders and busboys and everyone? It's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like John. It's a dark place. I mean, people doing other things that I wouldn't want to mention at church. And then he looks at me, he's like, brother, the candlelight burns brighter in the darkest of places. So let your light shine. I'm like, but Pastor John, no one will come to church even if I asked him. He's like, brother, you don't understand. You are the church. I'm like, all right, I am the church. Make no mistake about it. I told every waitress, every busboy about Jesus and every, every one of my clients, I told them about Jesus. And I would go, I was still unsanctified Andrew, right? I would go to a Bible study and then after I would go to staff night out. And I would have the Bible, this specific Bible on the side of my jacket pocket. And people, my staff would tell me, what's this? I'm like, oh, it's the Bible. It's like a Bible. I'm like, yeah, let me tell you about Jesus. I was the manager, right? So they had to listen. <laughs> I realized that Jesus is able to empathize with my weaknesses. He knows where I'm at, and that's where Jesus met me. He met me where I'm at. In Hebrews 4.15, it says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Moreover I realized 
that if there is such thing as eternal life and salvation, I could not attain them on my own because I know who I am. Being honest, I know what I've done. You can only imagine what it, what it is like to be a club manager. I had a very, very, very dirty life. And the things that I have done, not only in that life, but all of my life, came to haunt me. And I realized that if my mom knew the things that I have done, my own mother will be appalled. Maybe you know what I mean. And that's why I connected with what Paul said in Romans, the end of Romans 7. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I realize that. But then catch this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of, of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I realized that yes, I am a wretched sinner. Yes, my mother will be appalled. But thank God, Jesus is greater than my own mother. Thank God, Jesus loves me. Agape love, universal love, the type of love that he would lay down his life for his own enemies. Who would do that? The Bible says people would not even lay down their life for a righteous person. They may lay down their life for a good person, but no one would lay down their life for their enemies. That's exactly what Jesus has done. I started to realize that Jesus was pursuing me all along. He wanted to free me from the chains of religion and the chains of this world. In a loving, lovingly, fatherly way, he walked with me, convicted me, but did not shame me. I was free from fear, and I trusted Jesus. I was motivated by love now. I lived for Christ because I was in love with Christ. You would think that God would want to come to show his power in such a way that we would understand his power and glory. But that is the opposite of what he has done. You see, many Muslims don't see that. They don't see that, and that's why my friends, my family, and my colleagues could not see that. They would say, what a ridiculous thing. Why would God want to do this? What type of a God want to be humiliated, to be weak, to be killed for his own creation? What a foolish thing. And I look at them, I'm like, exactly, you got it. 
It's beautiful, right? And they're like, uh, no. I'm like, you don't get it. This is the counterintuitiveness of the gospel. It makes no sense that God would come and die for me. But if, if, if there is a God, God would do it this exact way. You see, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, it says this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, and here we are preaching Christ crucified. Foolishness. The message of the cross is scandalous, but it's out of love. At that point, I decided to leave nightlife, of course. I got another corporate job, returning back to the cubicle. And this job, on another big multinational company. So now I'm returning to the corporate world, but this position was not in Montreal. This position was in Saudi Arabia. So now, I'm returning back to Saudi Arabia, this time as a Christian. I go back, and I started to sharing the gospel with my colleagues and my friends and the remaining of my family. I couldn't shut up about Jesus. I just couldn't. I couldn't shut up about the gift of grace that God has done in my life. Knowing full well, of the dangers that would bring. Before I was agnostic, I did the down low thing. Now I'm a Christian, I do the high thing. <laughs> Everybody needs to low as loudest as I can make it. With wisdom, the hope that gives me life, and the only one who can save all of those who care about, I knew him. For me, it did not make sense to know the truth, to know what it will bring life to people who are perishing, people who are dying, and not tell them about it. It's like me being a paramedic, seeing someone choking and doing nothing about it, saying he's going to help himself. Seeing a child dying and an elderly just about to slip, and I do not go and hold them. To know the cure for death and to keep the gift of eternal life for myself is nothing more than if, if I were to do that as if I'm aiding the devil. This is God's work. And he commanded me, as he commanded all Christians, to tell people about what he has done. Everybody knows the Great Commission verses in Matthew 28, 1920. But in Saudi Arabia, it was different. What are the odds that people will be sharing the gospel with Saudis? This is not only true of Saudi Arabia, because people in Saudi, they are far from the gospel. They don't have churches over there. There are no Saudi church. And the Saudi believers are scattered across the country. Yes, there are Saudi believers. I'm not the only one. 
I realized, I thought I'm Elijah, but then God told me there are 7,000. So I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not so special. But then in Montreal, people are just as lost as they are in Saudi Arabia. That's why I don't feel, I, I feel at home here. In Romans 10, it says this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I can't show you my feet, but I have shoes on. Every single one of us. We have beautiful feet because we bring the good news. When I was in Saudi Arabia, I was so hungry for fellowship. And I was, as, because I was sharing with people, so that was draining. I needed someone to pour into my life. So what did I do? Well, you know, you remember I was attending the Bible study at church, right? With Pastor John, before I go to the staff night out. I was still a member of that home group. But now I'm in Saudi, so there's a time difference. So I would go to sleep at 10 or 11 at night, and I would wake up at 2 a.m. Saudi time, which is 7 p.m., the time of the Bible study, Montreal time. So I would sleep, wake up at 2 in the morning, attend the Bible study from 2 to 4 a.m., go back to sleep, wake up at 7, get ready to go to work. Every week for months, until God, God's providence caught up to me. And God sent me a body of Western believers. And those, a lot of them, Guess what? They were missionaries. And then I'm like, let's do it. We just started advancing the gospel in Saudi Arabia. And we started sharing the gospel. We just started fellowshipping. They started teaching me how to be safer. And at the time, I met Petra, my wife. Petra at the time was a flight attendant at a local Saudi airline. Petra was a nominal Catholic who later chose to follow Jesus Christ because God has graciously used me to lead her to himself. Of course, Petra struggled with the craziness of what's and the scandalousness of the gospel. She looks at me, she's like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, what? You're telling Saudis? You think Saudis want to hear about Jesus? I'm like, well, they're better. She's like, no, no, no. This is too dangerous, Andrew. You can't do this. I'm like, why? It's like, you know what they're going to do to you? I'm like, yes. And it's worth it. She's like, I cannot believe there's a God who would want to do this to his own people. Petra struggled a lot during that time. She's like, all these other missionaries, they're Americans. Nothing will happen. They're Americans. The worst, slap on the wrist, take it back home. You are a local. Your Canadian citizenship will not help you. You're, he's a Saudi. They will execute you. Now, that's when I told her. I'm like, babe, the love of God compels me. You cannot look at people, know that they're going to have eternal suffering and damnation because of their sin and say, yeah, it's all good. I knew the truth, and I had to say it to everyone. 
You know, yet unfortunately, I realize many Christians do not understand the possible necessity of suffering for those who carry their faith on their sleeves. Of course, Petra realized this as she grew to know God more. But at the beginning, it was hard for her. But that's her testimony. See, Christians do not see there is something attached to the gospel message. That suffering and the gospel are together. We say, Lord, we want to fellowship with you in glory when we are face to face with you. But then Paul said, let's fellowship with him in suffering too. We are saved through the cross suffering. Early Christians preaching the gospel, having joy, spoken tongues, had all the gifts. There was suffering, persecution. You want to grow in godliness, guess what? Some more suffering. Suffering and the gospel are together. Why? Because we have our hope not in this world. Where there is a temporal suffering. Because we put our sights on the glory of God that is to be revealed when we are face to face with him. Can you imagine, I heard this one preacher said before, he, said, he told me, he said this and I was like, wow, this is so true. He said this, he's like, imagine you're invited to a night to all the veterans who fought in the Second World War or Vietnam War. How awkward would it be for you? You have all these veterans who fought for freedom against the Nazis and you're sitting there. You haven't obviously participated in the war and you're sitting, just looking at everybody and everyone is exchanging story and, and, and saying, wow, it's great. We won. It's victory. When you're in eternal glory with God, there's going to be a dinner party every night for veterans. And they'll be swapping stories and sharing. Let me tell you, when one day when this guy tried to kill me, let me tell you when someone tried to mock me. Let me tell you when someone started to uh, point the finger and say, oh, this is a Christian, live him, he's weird. He prays before every meal. We start swapping stories because we're veterans. This is the fellowship. And this is what it means. There is no gospel without a cross to carry. And when we carry the cross, then Jesus' grace extends to us. We are able to go forward. Indeed, the narrative of the Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a story of God's love that conquered evil and death. Not despite suffering, but through it. The grace of God through Jesus Christ was the love of God for the whole world, but to me personally. Having chosen me before the foundations of the world. In due time he drew me nearer. And I chose to follow him. Since I knew Jesus, I never looked back. And although I had a lot of fear as I shared Christ in Saudi Arabia. God gave me grace. And gave me grace to share even more. And God protected me because he knew it's not my time. Thank God it wasn't my time. Please do not hear me say that I'm very brave because I'm not. I'm, I'm sharing this because I will do what Paul did. I will boast in my weakness. Because this is not my story. This is God's story. 
This is not my courage. This is God's grace. So please do not hear me say I was so courageous I shared the gospel with Saudis. But hear me say this. God is so powerful, so majestic. His providence ever abounds. His grace is everlasting. And his love extends to the end of the earth. So every time I would tremble in fear, every time I feel I might be get caught sharing the gospel or giving out a Bible, I would read these verses and they will give me a great comfort. And I will share it with you. It's from Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. Paul says this, and I'll close with this. What then? Shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, as is, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.